Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm here with RCD contributor John Waters. John, as always, good to talk to you again. Hi, John. Today, we're speaking with the authors of a new book, Unwavering, The Wives Who Fought to Ensure No Man is Left Behind. The story of how the wives of prisoners of war and those missing in action during the Vietnam War compelled the military and the U.S. government to change policy and focused a nation on the unfinished business of a war it would rather forget. Taylor Keeland is a former naval officer, the third generation in her family to serve in the Navy, and is also the author of two other books about our nation's POWs. And Judy Gray is a former correspondent for the Tampa Tribune, who has published five books on military topics. She is also a retired Coast Guard chief petty officer. She is the third generation in her family to serve in the military. Taylor and Judy, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Judy, why don't you start us off and and let us know what Unwavering is about briefly and what drew you to work on the topic? I uh, would say that Unwavering is, it's sort of a quintessential American story about gutsy military wives who against all odds and cultural mores and socioeconomic constraints convinced our government that they needed to know what was going on during a time that the policy was called keep quiet and they were told to leave diplomatic negotiations to the professionals. And that's in a nutshell, but they were gutsy and they persevered. And I'd like Taylor to tell you what was the impetus for the book. Well, I was six years old living in Coronado, California, a home to a a big military community and also home to many uh, POW and MIA families. I grew up with many of them. And in 1973, as I said, I was six years old and I remember the homecoming of our POWs. I remember the yellow ribbons and the homemade welcome home banners. And that left an indelible mark on me. Fast forward to the year 2000, I was a volunteer on the McCain for President campaign. And you may remember many of his fellow POWs campaigned on his behalf. They were some of his most powerful surrogates. And I met many of them and was struck by how successful they were both personally and professionally, despite being the longest held group of POWs in our nation's history. I went on to write two books about them, became friends with many of them. And one of them, Captain Dick Stratton, called me about eight years ago. And he said, you know, there's been a lot written about our battle and longtime captivity in Vietnam, but much less about the epic home front battle our wives waged. And there should be one. And I agreed with him. So I started on that journey and I recruited Judy to work on the book with me. This story goes back so far to a different generation. And I feel that modern veterans and modern military families have grown up looking at that black and white flag, the silhouette, P-O-W-M-I-A. I see it in my neighborhood. I've always seen it. It's indelible. But I don't have a personal relationship with the concept. What does P-O-W-M-I-A mean to people who grew up with that? I'm glad you asked that, John, because the um, prisoner of war and MIA flag was one of the many or one of several icons that were chosen to help the wives and families of those missing or imprisoned in North Vietnam galvanize the nation around a concept of bringing our forgotten or our missing home and also our captive. And the flag, which was never um, trademarked, became this symbol. It was supposed to be temporary 
and a placeholder, but it became this symbol that was instantly recognizable. And now you can't drive five miles in this nation without seeing it on a federal building, the nation's capital, even the White House. And um, everybody knows what it is. It's unmistakable. At the same time, John, the wives also partnered with a student group who created the POW bracelets, which many remember, and Taylor's showing you right now, um, it was uh, they were it was a group called Voices in Vital America. It was a student group, and they wanted to find a meaningful way to do something and galvanize the nation and rally them around this cause to get our men home. And I remember being a camp. Uh, a camper in upstate New York in the Adirondacks. And my camp counselor said, you must buy these. They're $2.50 and you must wear it until this man comes home. And both of those are, uh, well, they signify that these families and especially the wives were able to take an issue that was highly divisive. And that was the Vietnam War and rally everyone around the humanitarian side of that war to get our men home and find out what happened to our missing. And I'll jump in for a second. Those bracelets taking off in 1970, you tell this story in a really fun way. John Wayne wears a bracelet. President Nixon wears a bracelet. Only what a thousand or so of them are made initially, but the appetite for those bracelets explodes. That's right, John. I mean, it took like Judy said, a divisive war, and it rallied both those Americans who were pro-war and those Americans who were anti-war around a common cause. And that was the humanitarian issue of the treatment of our POWs and the fate of our missing men. Nixon was very smart in, in recognizing how, how popular this concept and this cause was. And he co-opted the women and made them sort of the representation of his, what he called the silent majority. And let's pick it up there because the story kind of follows at least six presidential administrations and how the cause of POW MIA evolved over the course. President Nixon, you just mentioned him. He maybe is the first to seize on this, not just as the right thing to do, but the politically opportunistic thing to do. Tell me about that story, Taylor, if you can. Well, yes, before the Nixon administration, um, well, before Nixon became president, the POWs and the MIAs and their families were what Secretary of Defense Mel Laird called the unmentionables during the war. The, the Johnson administration had preferred to use quiet, you know, back channel diplomacy to try and secure the release of our POWs and find out the fate of our missing men. And quite honestly, in their defense, that tactic had worked during the Cold War. All you have to do is look at the case of Gary Powers, uh, who you know, was shot down in his U-2 behind uh, the, the Iron Curtain. And, you know, through dipl quiet diplomatic efforts and negotiations, they were able to secure his release. The government thought that practice and that tactic would work. But of course, as weeks and months of the Vietnam War turned into years of the Vietnam War, the quiet diplomacy, the keep quiet policy became an abject failure. And Judy and I both feel that Mel Laird, President Nixon's Secretary of Defense, is sort of the unsung hero in this story. He convinces the Nixon administration that we needed to 
throw away the keep quiet policy and instead go public. And he initiated and mounted a huge public information campaign basically to to shame the North Vietnamese and put their the treatment of the missing and captive, the, the captive men on display. And he enlisted the uh, the women as his primary spokesperson spokespeople. He meets with the wives. He meets with the families, as does First Lady Pat Nixon. And you quote from the diary of Nixon's aide, H.R. Haldeman, quote, Now he has great interest. Amazing what a little personal exposure will do for the cause. These women moved him, moved his administration in a way that was not just about politics, but it was about the right thing to do and about feeling and compassion. Judy, can you tell me more about how this group of wives were able to change the way powerful people felt about POWs? Let's go back a little bit, John, to what the early 1960s were like. Taylor likes to say they were more like the 1950s. And in many ways for women, that's absolutely true. Women couldn't get credit. They couldn't get mortgage, a mortgage, which was really significant when their husbands went missing and they had to find a place to live off of military bases. So they needed a signature from a husband who was unattainable, which was unattainable, or they needed a signature from a father. And they couldn't make financial decisions without um, the, the input of a male in many cases. Women still did not go out unaccompanied by a male. Women did not disparage uh, anything, but particularly military wives, they were told in these guidebooks they had, such as the Navy wife, that they would not, they would bear their own burdens and not share that their husband was even missing. So against this backdrop, they moved from the sidelines slowly to the front lines. And some of this we contend is from watching other scenarios to see how people were coping with keeping quiet, being obedient and not tackling the home front battle. They, we contend in the book that they watched the seizure of the USS Pueblo and Rose Boucher, the wife of the CO, had, was thrust into the limelight and then never stopped talking, never stopped carrying placards that said, bring home the Pueblo, remember the Pueblo. And she was on uh, a circuit of PR tours, with doing media interviews. And this seemed to open the floodgates because she got her husband home and his crew within 11 months, while Sybil Stockdale and others were facing the end of their third year with a husband who hadn't come home and the beginning of a fourth year. And they were frustrated and they were unhappy and they did everything they could do. These were women with no diplomatic experience. Most of them, if they worked, were nurses, teachers, happy homemakers, or in some cases, social workers. But there were very few jobs open to them. A few uh, did other things, but very seldom did they work after having kids. And all of a sudden, they were thrust into this diplomatic role where they had to negotiate and ensure that the American public knew what was going on. And remember, also at that time, there was massive unrest in America. It, it was every strata, stratosphere of society. It was um, 
race relations. It was cultural wars. It was gender responsibilities for women in particular. And they were still trying to be beautiful Navy wives. So slowly, and we detail this in the book, they um, take on roles they never thought they would have to. They go on the stump. Some of them carry messages between agencies. Others write clandestine letters. And slowly they engender the favor of many people at the Pentagon who actually felt sorry for the families and gave them some counsel about what they could do. But I think they were, we think they were motivated by everything going on in America and how to get the attention of a public that was increasingly competing with uh, for attention on the news. I want to highlight a couple of these women. There were many, but two in particular. One, a woman named Carol, who you write, was a hot ticket. She ended up marrying a reprobate bachelor who did not take his Navy career seriously until he met her, uh, the former Carol Shep, who not only was raising three children while she was married to then Lieutenant Commander John McCain, held captive in Hanoi, but she suffered a horrible car accident in recovery from injuries, all the while advocating for her husband and other prisoners of war. Can you tell me about Carol McCain. Well, I can tell you a very interesting story that that about her, which really illuminates her her fortitude and, and bravery. And this was before she suffered her debilitating car accident in uh, 1969. A few months after her husband, Lieutenant Commander John McCain, was taken captive, she received a letter from a French journalist by the name of Francois Chalet. And at first, she thought this was perhaps a scam. Uh, this uh, French journalist said that he had just interviewed John McCain in captivity in Hanoi. And you can find a video of this, uh, of, of, of this interview if you Google it. It was taken from his hospital bed in Hanoi. But at the time, you know, it had not aired on television. And he went on to say that John loved her and she just wasn't sure if it was true. But then the, 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 the letter writer mentioned that John wanted me to make sure that uh, I wish you a happy birthday on your birthday in February. And uh, that's when she knew that this message had come directly from John. So she writes this, this jur- journalist back and she says, Monsieur Chalet, I would like to come to Paris to meet with you. And he agrees to do so. So she meets him in a cafe in Paris and he brings a copy of this film reel, you know, one of those big tapes at the time. And she said, you know, I really would like to see that tape. I have to have a copy of that tape. He said, well, you know, I have to make a living um, and I'm, I plan to sell this to American television. So I will give you a copy if you promise not to sell it. She said, I won't sell it. I just have to see this video of my husband. And then she proffers up a really interesting idea. She said, Monsieur Chalet, I have an idea. She said, what if you take me back to Hanoi with you and I go undercover as a member of your film crew? Who would know? I would just look at, you know, I could be very, very um, indiscreet about it. 
And that way I could see my husband and I also could report back on everything, the conditions in, 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 in captivity. And he kind of chuckles and he says, well, that's a very, that's a, that's a great idea, but I don't think they're going to let me back into Hanoi. But to me, it shows her fortitude and her bravery and, you know, her willingness to do just about anything to get access to her husband. Which was the hallmark of many of the wives, that they would do anything after years went by. They would have done them in the beginning, but they were really beholden to the mores of society and the rules of the military. You know, these ladies were walking the halls of Congress. They eventually went off to face down the North Vietnamese. Um, in Paris. Women didn't travel unaccompanied in those days, but they found someone to go with them. This is a thread we picked up on in other interviews where the military is poor, I guess, at communicating with families back home about what's happening to their loved ones in combat or in this case as prisoner, as a prisoner of war. She writes that until meeting with Chalet, she was grasping at straws and desperate for anything. Why is it the military doesn't communicate? They had no structure in place. I mean, they really had no structure in place to provide ongoing support to these families. You know, the Navy families were still living on base or near the bases. Many of the Air Force families were immediately kicked off military housing and many of the families went home to their hometowns. So they were physically isolated. They had a casualty officer, but the casualty officer didn't have a whole lot of information to share with them. And of course, then they had the chaplains. And as Carol McCain said to me, the chaplain, when he came to meet with me for the first and only time, took my hand in his and said, Mrs. McCain, I am here for you. I am in my office Monday through Friday, eight to four. <laughs> And also, John, another thing to keep in mind is that the general thinking was, how long could it take to defeat a country the size of North Vietnam? So initially, keep quiet, which was a holdover from the beginning of the Cold War, uh, worked very well. And then suddenly, you've got years going by, and these children of the women want to know where their loved ones are. Mothers and wives are desperate for information. And they're getting very little and they want to do something. So I think it's a combination of all these things happening at once that finally said to them, we're going to speak up and we're going to speak out. And so I'll stick with Carol McCain for a little bit and advance through the Ford, through the Carter administrations and get to the administration of President Reagan. Carol McCain, though her marriage with John McCain has ended, she continues to work on this cause and she finds a staunch ally in President Reagan, staunch ally for the cause of uh, missing an action in particular. Can you tell us about her work with President Reagan on this cause? Yes. Yeah, so Carol and John McCain become good friends with the Reagans after John returns from captivity. When Reagan was a governor, was the governor of California during the Vietnam War, he really, really um, became a strong ally to many of the POW and MIA wives. He wore the bracelet of Steve Hansen, whose wife, Carol Hansen uh, Hickerson, is, uh, is in our book. So the cause of the POWs and MIAs was very near and dear to him. And you know, many of his constituents uh, in California were military wives. 
So when he is running for uh, president for the first time, um, he uh, he and and Nancy Reagan enlist Carol to come and and work for for them. Carol becomes, I believe, it was campaign employee number eleven or twelve on the first Reagan uh, campaign in 1980. And as she's going through this, uh, you know, very painful divorce, uh, jumping on the campaign trail was very therapeutic to her. And she became uh, Nancy Reagan's right hand, traveled with them extensively in, in during the 1980 campaign. And when uh, President Reagan won his first election, she became the director of the White House Visitor's Office and did some really, really influential and uh, precedent-setting um, events there, including putting the White House Easter egg roll on the map. And she also was the creator of the White House historical or White House Christmas ornament, which are, are you know very, very popular uh, Christmas presents every year now. And so we've entered into the 1980s in the chronology, tracking the story of Unwavering with authors Taylor Keeland and Judy Gray. I want to hit another important figure, and that's uh, former Admiral James Stockdale and his wife, Sybil Stockdale. James Stockdale, was he, did he serve time in a Vietnamese prison? Was he gone for 10 years? Is that right? No, he was, he was shot down in September of 65 and returned in February of 73. So, Seven and a half years. For a time, the most senior ranking among the officers held in captivity, uh, his wife, Sybil, working tirelessly like other wives. Come to the 1980s and James Stockdale himself becomes a political figure for a brief period of time. Uh, can you tell us about what happens to former POW James Stockdale in the 80s and into the early 90s? Well, he, as you know, he was asked, or as you may know, he was asked to run for vice president with Ross Perot. And uh, the research shows, and Taylor did some of this with the Stockdale family, um, that he was asked by Ross Perot to run. This was never his intention, but being a dutiful Navy man and also hearing that he had been so supportive of the wives and families, he could not refuse. And when I say so supportive, he lent his time, sweat equity, tons of money, lots of airtime, and his plane for the cause. So Ross Perot was a real champion of the wives and families for a very long time. And that's what led everyone to be so uh, beholden and very loyal to him because he was the one who would listen and tirelessly help them no matter what the cause. Perot thought all the presidents basically were giving lip service to to the cause, didn't he? He absolutely did, John. And in fact, I allege that the reason he entered the race in 1992 and ran <laughs> against President Bush is because of the issue of the MIA. Yeah. The lingering the lingering question about what happened to our MIAs from Vietnam. He was very disillusioned with President Reagan and then President Bush. He felt that they were only giving lip service to this issue. He also believed very strongly that we left men behind uh, in captivity, alive after the war, and then covered it up. And as a result, he 
he entered the race in 1992. And to me, it is unbelievable that the issue, the fate of some 1,500 men missing in Vietnam played such a large role in the 1992 presidential campaign, some two, almost two decades after the end of the war. And there was a lot of conflict, though, with Ross Perot. We'll linger on that for a moment. Ross Perot, a Naval Academy graduate himself, John McCain, James Stockdale, all these figures swirling in the late 80s and into the 90s. Perot calls upon Admiral James Stockdale to serve as his vice president, and he ends up on stage, on television, talking about himself in a way that strikes people as, as strange. Who am I? Why am I here? Stockdale famously says. People don't often listen to what he said later. It was a Socratic question. He's a philosopher. You're right. And you, you have that in the book. He was the, the philosophical fighter pilot uh, that he was, a stoic at heart. He goes on to say, and you write this in the book, you should know that the American character displayed in those dungeons by those fine men was a thing of beauty. I look back on those years as the beginning of wisdom, learning everything a man can learn about the vulnerabilities and the strengths that are ours as Americans. Why am I here tonight? I am here tonight because I have in my brain and in my heart what it takes to lead America through tough times. Maybe people weren't listening, but you were. What did you see in this moment? Well, what I saw in that moment is a man who had led during one of the most difficult crucibles for any, any, any combat service man or woman. And he was the most accomplished leader in that, in that crucible. And as a result, you know, those men not only survived during captivity, they thrived in mm -hmm. captivity. And, you know, they all came home with their honor intact and they have the lowest rate of PTSD of any group of combat veterans ever. Their lifetime average rate is 4%. Unfortunately, when Stockdale was making this speech in the vice presidential vice presidential debates in fall of 1992, most Americans really just could not understand what he was or comprehend what he was saying. It just went right over their heads. And as Stockdale's son said to me, uh, his oldest son, Jim Stockdale said to me, you know, my dad was not a politician. My dad never had one conversation with Ross Perot about the campaign, about the election, about issues he stepped up to be his vice presidential candidate because Ross Perot asked him and because, and this is a quote from, from uh, Vice Admiral Stockdale's son, he said, my mom practically swooned when he talked about how supportive Ross Perot was for the wives and the families during the war. And we never forgot that. But he wasn't, speaking of Ross Perot, he wasn't so well liked by John McCain. No. McCain believes Perot is delusional, you write. Publicly, McCain eventually will call Ross Perot nuttier than a fruitcake. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why? Because John McCain disagreed with Ross Perot's belief about the missing men. John McCain did not believe that we left men behind willingly. And it's hard to believe, but in 2008... When John McCain was running again and he had the nomination, 
Several of the former POWs, including Everett Alvarez and Orson Swindle, pulled John McCain aside and said, John, you must go apologize to Ross Perot for making that statement. You must make sure that he does not become a spoiler for you like he was in 1992. Not because we think that he is going to join the race, but his voice is still a big one and you need to go and apologize. And so he did. He went down to Texas and he apologized. And being the loyal American that Ross Perot was, he immediately changed the subject and said, thank you for your apology, John. Now let's go over to the hospital because there's some veterans over there that are suffering from the Gulf War syndrome, and we need to get to the bottom of what this illness is. So think again, in 2008, some 30, how many 30 some odd years later, after the end of the war, the issue of the missing men from Vietnam is still playing a role in presidential politics in 2008. It's unbelievable to me. It is unbelievable. And you're talking about what role prisoners of war missing in action play in politics, in society today. And so let me ask a string of questions as we round out the conversation on unwavering by Taylor Keeland and Judy Gray. How many men were prisoners of war or missing in action in Vietnam? We had 591 POWs who came home from the Vietnam War. And at the time, we at the end of the war, we had about 2,500 missing men. That number has been whittled down to about 1,500. I think the current number 1597. is 1,579, something like that. In contrast, we have more than 72,000 missing from World War II and more than 7,000 missing from the Korean War. And prior to the Vietnam War, we just left our missing missing and we unilaterally declared all the missing dead. We, they, the role, the, the priority that we now place on missing and captive men never, never held the public's interest and never played a role in politics prior to the Vietnam War. And it's all because of the work that these women started in the Vietnam War, that we now truly uphold our policy to leave no man behind, and we will not tolerate captive men. Or women. And it it even impacts the way we fight our wars today. We use drones, we fly at higher levels, we do everything we can to avoid having POWs. So it's no mistake we left Afghanistan with no, not one single POW or missing person. However, it also bleeds into civilians who are in prison, such as, um, you know, we could list a whole bunch of them. But, you know, the latest is the Wall Street Journal uh, journalist who is imprisoned. And we really, Evan Gershkovitz, yeah. And we, I was just reading about him last night, and the efforts to try to get him freed can be drawn directly to the work these women did. So their legacy, which is very unknown, is really important to those serving today. But their other legacy is also, John, that we take care of families in a much better way. There is better communication. There are ombudsmen who are liaisons between the units that are deployed or the military unit that's stateside and serving and the families because of the work these women did. In fact, Dick Stratton... Captain Stratton, the very famous POW who cajoled Taylor into thinking about writing this, 
His wife went on to be appointed in 1985 for four years as the first deputy secretary of the Navy for family affairs. As far as we can tell, she's the first female in a role like that, equal to an admiral, a three-star. And she also had spent her life, her adult life as a social worker, very concerned about the impact on military families. So between not leaving anyone behind and what the impact of leaving people in the theater of war is like on the home front battlefield, uh, these women made an indelible impact that endures and we almost don't even really talk about it. And that's why this story really matters. Agreed. The book Unwavering, The Wives Who Fought to Ensure No Man Is Left Behind, Their Legacy Touches Military Families Today Across the World. There's work still to do, but much was done by the ladies covered in this book. Taylor Keelan and Judy Gray, thank you for talking about it with us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.